I'm turning today to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7 and verse 24. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verse 24. And from thence he, the Lord Jesus Christ, arose and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon and entered into an house and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. And our subject this morning is very simply, what is saving faith? And here is a notable case of a great blessing given to a Syrophoenician woman. And it is a notable case because it is one of those instances where the giving of the blessing, which was the healing of her daughter, the casting out of a demon, was delayed and the Lord appears to hesitate and appears even to uh, uh, refuse to hear her and her request. But we see soon enough there's a purpose in it and there's a reason. And so it's a passage which helps greatly in the matter of seeking the Lord, especially when someone is waiting a while at the door of Christ and there seems to be no response and that person is repenting of sin and seemingly trusting in Christ and calling upon him for salvation but without response. Well, here is a case where this very issue is is the point and we begin here in verse 24. He arose, he's been in Capernaum, on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, and he arose and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon. Now, as the crow flies, if he was to go to the most southern of those cities, it would be some 35, 36 miles, but it's a route uh, far more laborious than that suggests. And it's a three-day journey through the hills and a very irregular route to Tyre and Sidon. Tyre, a Mediterranean port, some uh, 20 miles to the north of uh, Sidon, and between them is a notable place, Zarephath, where in previous centuries... Elijah was fed by the widow woman. It's up there in Phoenician territory. In the time of Ahab, Jezebel was a daughter of a Sidonian king and one of the most wicked enemies of Israel in ancient times and took many, many lives. It's Phoenicia up there. It's heathen territory, pagan territory. And... uh, Yet here is a woman who seems to be greatly affected by the teaching of the Israelites, more affected than they were themselves. Verse 24, from thence, from Capernaum, he arose and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon and entered into a house and would have no man know it. He wished to be unannounced. He wished to be left alone. Because he knew, of course, he was going to have a particular visitor. 
a very persistent woman crying out for help. He appears to have made this journey for this single purpose. And after the healing, the casting out of the demon from the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, he proceeds back to Galilee and thence on to Decapolis. So he had one call, one purpose up there. He who could command vast crowds wherever he set foot made this journey for the sake of one person, made himself available to no one else. But he could not be hid as far as this woman was concerned. Verse 25, for a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him. She heard of him. She seems to have heard a great deal about him. There's much more information given in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, he, she cried after him, Matthew says. Repeatedly, that's the tense in the Greek. She went on crying after him. His one caller calls and calls and calls for help and for healing. She says to him, have mercy on me, thou son of David. More than, she'd more than heard of Christ. She'd heard a great deal about him. Perhaps there were quite a few up there in Phoenicia who had taken note of the teaching about Messiah in Israel. The Israelites, well, they were non-responsive at this time. But here's a woman up in Phoenicia, thou son of David, promised Messiah, man of compassion, man who has come, the great descendant of Adam and of King David, who is divine, God as well as man, who has come to deliver from sin and to draw people to himself. She knew all about that. And she believed in him and trusted him. So let's make that a heading. He receives a call from a believer. Because up to a point, she is a believer. She believes in the Messiah of Israel. Even though her own region, her own nation, is fiercely anti-Israelite. Yet she's one of those who have heard of him and taken note. She seems to have said to herself, we don't have a Messiah. She was a, a member of a polytheistic nation. We have many gods. And one principal idol that we worship in Phoenician territory, but our gods have no power. Our gods have no personhood. They, they don't live. You cannot communicate with them. You can only appease them. You can only buy them off from giving you Ill, Ill fortune. They're not living and with you. And Israel has a living God and one God and a Messiah to come who's going to deliver from sin and forgive. And he's here. And we're hearing about him up here in Phoenicia, that he forgives sin, that he heals thousands that he can cast out demons 
but he's a man of great holiness and character, that he is surely the God-man expected, far higher and better than anything that we have up here in Phoenicia. So she believed in him, and she comes to him. But the information in Matthew prepares us for verse 25. She heard of him and came and fell at his feet. But in Matthew we're told that the Lord Jesus Christ, first of all, answered her, not a word. He said nothing to her. It would be unfair to say he ignored her. There's no note of that. I've no doubt he looked at her. She saw him. He was the Messiah, the man of compassion. She could see it in his eyes. He had sympathy. He had compassion. He looked at her, but he said nothing. And she wondered what to make of this. Was she being refused or wasn't she? Not a word came out of the Lord. And yet his look, he was his usual entirely compassionate self. And then the disciples wanted to send her away, Matthew tells her. Send her away, Lord, because she cries after us. Was she hoping the disciples could heal her daughter? Oh no, she was trying to prevail on the disciples, I imagine, to persuade Christ to hear her and to respond to her. So she came after them. She wondered if she had the wrong protocol, the wrong approach, and they must introduce her to him, or something of that kind. So she appeals to them, and they're filled with impatience. Lord, send her away. So there's a delay in her receiving help from the Lord. But finally, he does say something to her, and what he says is very discouraging. He says to her, Is it right to give the children's bread to the dogs? And she's taken aback. The children's bread? She falls at his feet now. She worships him, says Matthew. End of verse 25. The woman was a Greek. Verse 26, a Syrophoenician by nation. And she besought him repeatedly that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. And Christ went on and added to what is recorded in Matthew. Verse 27, but Jesus said unto her, let the children first be filled, for it is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it unto the dogs. Sounds an awful thing to say. Down in Israel, we're told by the experts, I'm not sure how they know, but we're told that the uh, families tended not to keep dogs. There were dogs in the villages of Israel and in the towns, but they were rough creatures and scavengers. Few households kept dogs as pets. But up in Phoenicia, it was quite different. Almost all the household 
had pets. So these dogs were a different character. They were gentle, they were docile, as dogs, as pets can be. They uh, lived under the table, as it were. They received the scraps. And what the Lord says is quite reasonable. Let the children first be filled. In Matthew's Gospel, we're told he's already said, I am not come except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What's he doing? Why is he hesitating to help the woman? Well, there were several reasons. One was the reason he stated. He was not commissioned for the first part of his ministry, the Lord, to preach to Gentiles. He was to focus on the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And there was a reason for that. There was no church yet. There were no teachers yet. If converts had been found among the Gentile nations, the pagan nations, how would they have been looked after? Who would have taught them? They would have fallen prey to false teaching and scavengers, spiritual scavengers, very quickly. The reaching of the Gentiles was just to wait a a little while until Calvary, until the cross of Christ, till Christ died for sinners, until the message was plain, until the day of Pentecost, until the conversion of many Jews who were steeped in the word, who would be the first generation of teachers, even in the Gentile churches, who would go everywhere proclaiming the word like the disciples, and the word would go out and travel. That was the time when the Gentiles would be gathered in. Not yet. This woman is going to be blessed in the Lord's time. She will be a token of the fact that the gospel and the blessing is for Gentiles. But the general call for the Gentiles had to wait just a little while until the Jews started to be saved, until there were teachers until the church was formed. So the Lord's commission is to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yet he intended to bless this woman. So there's another reason why he seems to hesitate and puts her off. It is to draw out her faith. She believes in Messiah. She believes he has all power. She believes he's the compassionate one. She must express it. Her faith must be drawn out, as it were. And it is. In verse 28, she gives this tremendous reply. She answered and said unto him, Yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. And he said unto her, For this saying, go thy way. In Matthew's Gospel, we read that he also said, Woman, great is thy faith. But in Mark's Gospel, we're given these words too, For this saying, she said exactly 
the right thing. Yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Just imagine it, friends. The woman says to herself, I believe he's the Messiah. I believe he would never refuse a request to forgive and to heal. I believe he's the infallible son of God. I believe he's the one. I'm not of the house of Israel, but I believe he is the one who has come for all mankind. His appearance is the appearance of a man of sympathy and compassion. His words, I am not come except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It is not appropriate to take the children's meat and cast it to the pets. There must be something in his words, she says, that are a promise for me. There must be something here for me. And she gets it quick as a flash. Of course, she says to herself, but the household pets, the dogs, they don't starve. They are provided for. In due course, they get the scraps. They are fed. They are very well fed. They're happy. They wag their tails in delight. They serve their masters in whatever way they desire. The dogs are provided for. I'm not of the house of Israel. But like the household pets, I can be looked after. She coupled the compassion in his face with careful consideration of her words and she got the point. There is a blessing even for an outsider. He's come for the house of Israel first and foremost but there is a blessing for the non-Israelites. There's a blessing for the outsider. And so she utters these words. Yes, Lord. Matthew gives us more. Truth, Lord. Everything you say is true. Yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. And he said, for this saying, go thy way. She trusted his word and she saw the promise that was in them. Now let's apply this to ourselves. Is there someone here or any number here? And I opened with this. And you think you've repented of your sins and you've come to Christ and you've trusted in him but you have no sense that he's received you. You have no assurance that you're forgiven. You feel no consciousness of being changed, of being received. Well, there's something here for you. Hesitation is for a reason. The great theologian of old, John Owen, said, when Christ keeps a sinner 
waiting at the door, there is always a reason. What's the reason for me? Why do I not seem to be received? Well, let's consider, first of all, repentance. It may be that there is some defect in your repentance. Now, repentance isn't a work. It's not like passing an exam where there are ten questions and you have to get them all right and then you're passed. It's an easy thing. There's no merit in repentance and yet we can make big mistakes. So let's just think of some of them. And I tell you this pastorally. These are things one gleans over the years from what different friends tell you. It may be that someone is repenting only of one sin or two sins or three sins and that's it. I've been caught out, you might think. I told a terrible lie and I've been exposed. It's obvious and I'm ashamed. So I repent of that one sin. Yes, but that's not repentance. What about the rest of me? Am I not repenting? I don't have to make an inventory of all the sins I've ever committed. That would be impossible. But I have to come to the Lord aware of the fact that I have so many sins. And maybe the main sins that I commit will be in my mind. Lord, I am a sinner. I need complete washing and forgiving and renewing. That's repentance. It isn't getting the list perfect or the list right, but it's acknowledging the depth of the problem. So there must be that. It's more than one thing or two things. And then sometimes, I think, we repent only of deeds. Thought, word and deed. And we forget the condition and the heart. I not only have committed sins, I am a sinner. I have a state of heart which is proud and selfish and mean and hostile. It's deep in me. It's my condition. It's not just, oh yes, I have done this and I've done this and I've done this. It's me. Am I acknowledging that before the Lord? Lord, I have sinned. Lord, I am a sinner. That's repentance. You won't get into the kingdom of God saying, as it were, I've committed one or two things, a few things. Thought, word, and deed, that's bad enough. You have to acknowledge your total need. I am a lost 
sinner under the condemnation of Almighty God. And then some people, here's a mistake, and a very serious one, they say, yes, I've sinned, but I was provoked. I had unusual circumstances. I had a rough upbringing. And there's no sooner repented than they're making excuses. It wasn't my fault after all. Or it wasn't very much my fault. I had to. That's not repentance, friends. To acknowledge a little bit and then immediately excuse it in my mind. We have to watch out for that. Excusing our sin. And similar to that, people say sometimes, yes, I have done wrong. I am a sinner. But I have a lot of good in me. If I have the forgiveness of God, I need it for 50% of my life and 50% I earn God's merit. I'm an easygoing person, you might say to yourself. I'm a generous person. Yes, I lose my temper, but I get over it very quickly, as though that makes it right. There's good in me. I deserve something. No, friends, that ruins everything. I am a sinner. If there are bits of good in me, they are completely obliterated and outweighed by the fact that I'm a sinner and I'm under condemnation. If you're standing trial for murder, it's no good telling the judge you've done one or two good deeds in your life. I'm a sinner. I'm condemned. I won't put against that any imagined good or think I deserve anything. And some people, it's also clinical. They're, they're not really ashamed. You can't repent if you don't have any shame. Well, then what do I do? If I don't feel shame, ask God to give you some shame. Ask him to help you. He will, because you must have some shame in order to repent. And don't say ever, I'm not as bad as other people. I'm a sinner, but I'm not as bad as other people. In God's sight, we're all as bad as each other. Dear friends, it's just a few words about repentance. I hope it's helpful and not gloomy. It's really not like passing an examination, as I've said. But we have to be straight before God and mean it and ashamed. But then there's just another aspect to this, and it reminds us of the woman, the Syrophoenician woman, the Lord was bringing out her faith and it came out and throughout you see that her faith was on his compassion. Now some people make a big mistake in faith. 
Some people make the mistake with repentance. Other people make the mistake with faith. They put their faith in the outcome, the reward. I believe I can be saved. No, no, you don't put your faith in the outcome. You put your faith in Christ, who secures the outcome. This woman did. The Lord said not a word. Then he says a discouraging thing. I am not come except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then he says an even more discouraging thing. Is it right, is it appropriate to take the children's portion and to cast it to the pets? But she's looking at him. And she's fixed her faith on him. But, 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 but you are compassion. You are mercy. It's not that you have compassion. You are compassion. You're the man of compassion. The man of mercy. There must be something in what you're saying that I'm missing. Now I get it. Yes, I'm an outsider. Like the household pet is not a member of the family. But even the household pet is fed so I can be helped and blessed is a promise for me. You see, her faith was fixed upon him. He is Messiah. He is Lord. He not only has the power, he has the compassion and the mercy. And that's a lesson for us. On what are you setting your faith? You need repentance, you need faith, and the faith must be in him. Not the outcome, I have faith to believe I will be saved. That's the end of the process. I have faith in him and his mercy. I'm a lost sinner. If I couldn't believe he is full of compassion and mercy and suffered and died for sinners, I'm lost. I fix my faith on him. For this saying, the Lord said to her, for this saying, your daughter is well. The healing is given. The forgiveness comes. The new birth is given. You fix your faith on him. I must come to conclusion, friends. In the 18th century, you know the name of John Newton, who was a slave trader, who was converted to Christ. Well, he was lived an evil life in the slave trade. In the end, he became a slave, two slaves. And his father commissioned a sea captain to go and look for him and find him and recover him. And he did find him. And he put him on board his vessel, the Greyhound, and it sailed back uh, from Africa to England. And as you probably know, it was caught in a mighty storm. 
and the greyhound was almost smashed to pieces. And Newton at one point, being a seaman, was lashed to the helm so that he wouldn't be swept overboard and was desperately trying to steer the vessel. It landed in Ireland eventually in pieces, but all on board were so terrified they were bound to be lost, they thought, and it was at that time that Newton began to cry out to God for salvation. But not so much to save his life, but his soul. He saw his life. He saw he was condemned. Who preached the gospel to Newton? Where did he learn about salvation and Christ and his atoning death for sinners? There was no preaching going on in that storm. Where did he learn these things? He learned these things when he was four and five years of age at his mother's knee. He learned them as a child and he repudiated them and rejected them and went away from them. And now he's a young adult and he's being shipwrecked at sea and he cries out to God. But in one of his hymns written some 20 years after this event, he tells us exactly what was going through his mind. It strikes me that Newton's experience was very similar to that of the Syrophoenician woman. She heard of Christ, though she lived in a pagan land. And when he came into that territory, she made a beeline for him. Newton heard of Christ as an infant, and now it all comes back to him. The, the message of the gospel. She had to have her faith drawn out of her so that it was clear to the disciples and everyone that her faith was in Christ and his compassion. And Newton had exactly that experience. Lashed to that helm, to that wheel, with the vessel surely going to be broken in pieces and sunk and all lives lost, he saw the compassion of Christ. Let me just read a few verses from his hymn. This is reflection on what happened to him. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new wonder shocked my sight and stopped my wild career. He's talking about on the greyhound, I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood who fixed his loving eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Never until my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and fell to deep despair I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Another look he gave which said, I freely all forgive the blood that has your ransom paid. This blood has for your ransom paid. I die that you may live. 
That's what went through his mind. Lashed to that wheel. And he set his faith on the Christ of Calvary, the atoning saviour, the Christ of compassion. That's what he depended on. I am a sinner. I have done terrible things. I have rejected everything. He said to himself, but his compassion, I set my faith on that, his mercy, his love, his atonement. You see it in this woman. She couldn't believe the hesitation of the Lord because her faith was set on his compassion and his love. She didn't even know about Calvary yet. It hadn't happened yet. But she saw his mercy and his compassion. That's the key. Real repentance. Sincere repentance. And set your faith and your look on him. Then ask him to save your soul and forgive you. And he will.